0: I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. And these are Conversations About the News. We are in the midst of a communications revolution. We have access to more information than any people in history. But are we more informed or
1: just overwhelmed by so much information we can't process it? These conversations are a year-long collaboration of the Bob Schieffer College of Communication at Texas Christian University and the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Now, everyone knows Bob Schieffer's a newsman, but not everyone knows how he became an anchorman. He wrote a song about it. Let's have a listen.
0: Well, I left this job that I just took, started practicing my sincere look. They said I had the face of a man with heart. They wrote me some lines, taught me a style, drew a happy face on the script where I should smile, and the key demographics went right off the chart to say they pay me good, a whole lot better than Stuckies ever would, and a cute little stage manager gives me all my cues. Selling tractor hats and pumping gas, that's all part of my long ago past. Now I just sit there and read the news. He became a TV anchorman, a TV anchorman, he joined the eyewitness team, with that channel four or channel nine,
1: So now you know, and here's Bob Schieffer.
0: We're joined today by John Cutter, the managing editor of the Orlando Sentinel. He's been a journalist since 1981, started at the Daily Record, went on to the Tampa Bay Times, uh, joined the Orlando Sentinel in 2002, where he was first a bureau editor, then assistant city editor. He joined the Interactive arm in 2006. At Interactive, he managed the editorial team that handles breaking news for OrlandoSentinel.com. In 2008, he took a break from the Orlando Sentinel to join the NBC affiliate in Orlando, but returned to the Sentinel in 2010, became the managing editor there in 2015. The Sentinel is the largest news organization in Orlando. It's won three Pulitzer Prizes and covered many major stories, such as the Casey Anthony trial, and the death of Trayvon Martin. Most recently, uh, its coverage of the Orlando shooting at Pulse Nightclub can be described as nothing short of remarkable. On the Sunday after the shooting, the Sentinel published 30 videos, 40 stories about the shooting online, and an eight-page print section. So, John, I'm going to just start with a, a very broad question. How did you do it? Well, uh, thank you for
2: asking me to talk about it. Um, I mean, anytime anything big happens, I think, in any newsroom, and including ours, people just rally very quickly uh, and know what to do. I I do think our experience of having covered some uh, larger breaking news events... Uh, especially in this online world, helped a lot. I mean, you mentioned Casey Anthony and the death of Trayvon Martin and the trial of George Zimmerman. But we've also had some hurricanes and some terrible tropical weather events that have caused us to rally really quickly. So I wasn't worried at all about the initial reaction. It was just sort of sustaining and honoring what had happened and doing justice both online and in print to the story is where I started to get some concern.
0: Well, you had... At your peak, and not too many years ago, 350 uh, journalists uh, at the Sentinel. You covered uh, that shooting, I'm told, with just about 100 people. Uh, You have uh, called your reporters, and you said this. This was a quote from you. They knew the importance of homepage presence during breaking news. They knew how to use Scribble Live and Facebook Live. And reporters knew how to take their own photos and shoot their own videos. Your newsroom has adapted. So that's what I want to talk about. How did you do this? Uh, You know, I used to be a newspaper person myself for for a long time. And I know the culture of newspapers or the newspapers that I worked for back in my day. Uh, That is a totally different culture in the newsroom today. How did you get to where you are now?
2: I I think it's certainly been a a long process. You mentioned when you were talking about my own um, odyssey of the different things I've done here and how I'd started in uh, 2006. Uh, The Orlando Sentinel had had online presence going way back to the old AOL days back in the 1990s, but it really wasn't until about 10, 12 years ago that I think we all saw the numbers that were happening to our print circulation and realizing that the world was moving very, very quickly uh, to needing to get information as well digitally. So they created a few jobs in a newsroom. I got one. And our job was to start to get people to change a little bit of their attitude. Um, You know, I was a longtime feature writer. I I mean, I spent (laughs) better parts of a day just working on the first three, four paragraphs of my story. Those days had to go away. So we had to really work with people to make them understand the importance of connecting with readers uh, in the moment, fairly and accurately, not just throwing anything up. And and that's a lesson that we've sort of grown from just posting stories very quickly to teaching people how to uh, shoot photos with their phones to now using some apps on their phones to to do videos. Uh, And the people who have decided to stay in journalism uh, are very much interested in not just writing great stories that'll appear in the print uh, section, but we're really wanting to understand how to connect with uh, with the people who are coming to us on phones or tablets or desktops
0: well what you're running now is not just a newspaper you're running a media company uh, you're you know you're running what we used to call a wire service a local wire service uh, you're you're doing photo journalism. uh you're posting it you're talking about immediacy Uh all of the things that uh, were totally different and, and weren't done uh, at the Sentinel. So I, I want to ask you just how are you organized? You said, you know, when this story break, broke, you, you weren't so worried about, you know, knowing what to do. But I think a lot of news organizations are wondering what to do when a story breaks. I mean, uh are you still organized in the way that uh, newspapers used to be? Do you have a city editor? Do you have a national editor? Uh, do you uh, who who coordinates with who? Because it's more than just saying, "Well, there's a big story, boys. Let's go out there and cover it." Uh, I remember I was at the Fort Worth Star Telegram when uh, 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 President Kennedy was shot in Dallas, and it was total bedlam until we sorted out what was going on and uh, you know we got the story done but uh, it wasn't just a case that we all knew exactly what to do it seems to me you have done a lot of planning uh, to get to where you are and and that's one of the reasons you were able to cover this story the way you did
1: Uh,
0: i certainly hope that
2: it was a lot of planning to be honest one of the things about having a newsroom this size is that the the management structure is a lot more uh, direct and telescope than it was when there were 350 journalists so I mean I'm I'm the managing editor we have a, a publisher and editor-in-chief but I have basically a local news editor somebody who does sports and entertainment somebody who does the visuals those are the three people that that work with me day to day so that that contrasts to a time where, You know, if you just had a news meeting, we probably don't have a room big enough anymore to fit anybody in because there'd be line editors and deputy line editors and all that. So in one way, it helped to have a newsroom this size, which I, I, to be honest, can't even believe I'm I'm saying that. But uh, I think because we have really strong people uh, in those positions who have learned a lot about how to tell stories in the online world, but not in any way neglect the idea that we have a newspaper to put out the next day that needs to have uh, perhaps context we haven't been bringing uh, there, that needs to use its photography in a different way, that needs to use its typography in a different way. So we, we have, to me, the ideal people who've decided to stay in journalism and that we've decided to keep, are are those bit of a hybrids who know that in the moment I need to do this, but at some point I need to be able to hand that off to some world that's going to be delivered to your door at six or seven the next morning. So I'm not sure,
0: Bob, that answers your question well. No, no, but I mean uh, that's that's the, that's what I I want to know about. And uh, how does your uh, how do your editors work? I talked to. A fellow the other day who had worked at a a metropolitan newspaper in the South, and uh, he had been among those laid off, and I said, uh, who did they lay off? And he said, well, in this go-round, they laid off the editors. And I said, what? He said, you know, we don't have any editors. He said, our job now is to go out, cover the story, post it online, and then after it's online, uh, basically after it's been published, uh, then uh, people back in the office read it. Uh, How does it work at the Sentinel?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's still some times where reporters will post directly to a, a blog or online without an editor looking at it, not in a, a case so much like this, but I, I don't think that we're set up very much differently than even when I started uh, way back in the, the early 80s. I mean, there are still editors who work with reporters very directly, and they some of these editors have deputies. but. I think the the difference is that it is true. There are fewer editors. And the thing I find perhaps most sad about the next generation of journalists is they're not going to have had as many uh, hours as I did at the arm of some editor telling me how to make my story better because there just aren't enough of us left anymore. So there there tends to be a lot of training on the fly and going back over somebody the next day and saying, hey, you know, if you'd structured it this way. so. Um, but we are set up. I think if if we could have taken a 1980s newsroom and with uh, you know with a different mindset, uh, you know, kept that structure, what you have now that you never had before, obviously, are people who are dedicated to social media, who are. Putting out our information onto Facebook or managing Scribble Live, which is basically sort of a something that aggregates a lot of uh, uh, both social media and other updates that we're given. We have video journalists who um, you know just tell the story with um, with moving images as well as still. So I mean, there are jobs, there are homepage editors that didn't exist. So, um, but but the reporters still go out do their job. Uh, and they have to put it up a lot faster, sometimes calling it in. But my first job as an intern was to take <laughs> was to take uh, calls from uh, reporters out in the field and type notes in and rewrite them into stories. It was a rewrite desk. It's not that different
0: in some ways. Well, tell, take me back to the night of that shooting. This was something that happened late. I'm sure most of the people at uh, the Sentinel had already gone home. How did you find out about it and... Uh, Just give us a little timeline of what you did after that.
2: Sure, Uh, it it did happen at, uh, I believe the first police call was somewhere around 201 or 203 in the morning. Our newsroom generally is staffed until about 1 or 2. Uh, It was a Saturday night, earlier deadlines, there was no reporter or editor in the room. Uh, A reporter, Crystal Hayes, uh, had gone home and uh, she was watching Netflix uh, in the middle of the night, uh, saw a tweet from um, I believe Orlando Police Department that said uh, shooting activity Orange Avenue closed down which is where Pulse is very close to downtown Orlando and uh, did just what she needed to do which was go figure out what was going on so she went out she called somebody who called another editor called another editor I probably didn't get a call until about about 6 a.m. Uh, which was fine because they were doing their work. Um, by the time I got in here at seven a.m., I mean there were, uh, there were I don't know maybe ten or fifteen people already on the story, and it just continued to grow from there. But uh, it really was about a reporter paying attention to social media, you know, while she's uh, off hours, noticing what had happened. Uh, I, I'm to be honest, it, it it could have been a case where we might not have known for a couple hours, and that's another scary thing since newsrooms aren't staffed overnight anymore.
0: Well, uh, talk to me a little bit about how you're using uh, Facebook now and other social media uh, at the Sentinel. You you obviously have your own website. Uh, you're you know you're generating these stories, but you are using not just. Getting the first word on things that have happened, but uh, how are you using these other uh, social media uh, tools? I mean,
2: you know, I I like to tell people that they need to think of social media as a as a conversation place. Uh, so you know, we try to be out there, both listening and talking to people on Twitter, on Facebook. They've tried Snapchat. To be honest, that doesn't I don't understand that one at all. But uh, the idea that they need to sort of get our content in front of people but also when they post a comment sort of, you know, be interacting with them in some way. So in this specific case where Facebook was a, uh, an advantage was that it allowed us to, um, you know, put some information in front of people but also find out. Once we started to get the names of some of the people who were killed that night, often social media was the first place that we were able to find some information about them and at least get in contact with friends or family and confirm some of that. So. Uh, that, that really showed the power, especially of the generation of people who were in that club, their, their lives are fairly open and they're all over social media. So we learned a lot about them and didn't have to maybe go knock on a door as they would have when I started or when you were younger, um, and find somebody and talk to neighbors. We were able to do a lot of that online or by phone.
0: Yeah. Let me, I want to bring Andrew uh, Schwartz into this, but let me just ask you, uh, this question. Do you go with something on social media before you're able to uh, uh, confirm it for yourself or or do you sometimes just go with what you're picking up on social media? Well, I'd love
2: to say that we never do because we've had intense discussions about this and part of what we say is no. Uh, I mean, you could create a fake John Cutter profile on Facebook and post some ridiculous thing and then I, the managing editor of the Orlando Sentinel would be quoted saying something. So we're very cautious about telling them that they're not supposed to take things from there. Now, there's some official pages and such that uh, you know, we would use. I mean, every, every entity these days has, has some official presence. But we do tell them uh, that if there's any question about wanting to use something and need to go to an editor, that's just basic journalism advice, and that if they do take something and we agree that it should be reported based on a social media uh, post that we make it very clear where it came from and how it came from and and uh you know the attribution part but uh there have been a few times where i've seen things reported in other media and i'm very happy that that somebody held up their hand and said wait 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 don't 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 put that up there Um, we had a downtown shooting a few years ago um, while i was at the tv station and uh uh, there were reports up to 10 people shot and killed all over social media that we at the tv station and and the sentinel here never reported ended up to believe i believe one so you know you you should never believe everything somebody's telling you and social media certainly doesn't make it any more accurate than if they're actually just telling it to you
1: andrew thank you bob uh john again what an admirable uh method of covering uh such a, a horrific story since then, how has your strategy changed um, in using social media to actually get the news out?
2: I'm not sure that it's changed. I do think our coverage has changed. Uh, in the initial hours and days of what happened, uh, my mantra and the editors who worked here was that we needed to understand that this had happened to us to our community to people that if we didn't know them directly we knew people who knew them Uh, i've told the story a few times of coming in here and a couple of people crying getting phone calls from people wondering if perhaps a loved one or a friend was in pulse Uh, but we needed to make sure our coverage reflected that that to, to focus on the people who had died to focus on uh the the people who had been injured to focus on the impact of the community I guess where I see some of the transition, both in coverage and maybe to social media, is we knew there would be a time where we would have to look a little more closely at what the first responders had did and and uh, what what had happened inside the club. And we didn't write it stories as early on as some people who said you know were quoting experts saying terrible things uh, had happened and they could have handled it differently because we felt like we still didn't understand what had happened in the club. Once some of the uh, reports and such had come out, we did that. So um, the, the transition now, both in coverage and in social media, I think, is, is trying to understand a little more of what's happened to the community. And that's the listening part of social media. But then also trying to kind of engage the community in the idea that we have to understand what happened. How was this club picked? Um, what did the police do properly? What might they have done differently? Uh, and that will all come out and so, as i said both both sort of trying to get that in front of people but also trying to listen a lot to what's being said out there.
1: did you learn a lot about where your audience is in terms of how to actually reach the audience? Um, a lot of news organizations these days are not just necessarily driving traffic to their owned and operated platform, Orlando OrlandoSentinel.com, for instance, but they're, they're using Facebook, they're using Snapchat, they're using Twitter, they're using other platforms to get their news out. Are you all doing that, and are you learning more about the habits of the community that's consuming your news? I
2: mean, it, to me, it's always... I mean, we're, they're they're there on Facebook and they're there to an extent on Twitter. We find much more engagement on Facebook than on Twitter than on Snapchat uh, in the sense of people both commenting and reading and sharing our posts and coming to the site. So whatever the difference is between a, a how people use Facebook and how people use Twitter, one of the things we've all come to understand is that Facebook seems to be this community of, of uh, people who are spending time engaging with what you do. Um, so one of the things that, that we did here and we had started to do more of was using Facebook Live to um, to stream directly to Facebook. Uh, for a while we were uh, just streaming to our site and kind of hoping people would come here, selfishly thinking, well, I, I, want, I want the person on my site, I want the ad impression. Uh, but we realized that's not how people are using social media. They're they're on Facebook already. Why are they going to click somewhere and go somewhere else? So so we've been using Facebook Live a lot more as plenty of people have and and I find that been uh, one of the reasons I left the Sentinel to go to TV was because it was becoming very obvious that it, that the world was expecting uh, video storytelling to go along with the words and images and I wanted to learn more about that. So Uh, You ran down earlier how many videos and how many stories we had done that day. If you go back five years, it would have been a fraction of the videos and probably just as many stories. And I don't think, again, the world on social media has told us they they want video storytelling as well as
0: words. Let me uh, ask you about, uh, you're one of the few that we have uh, talked to here who has had uh, a lot of experience at local newspapers, but also uh, in local television. Uh, What was that like? What was the difference? You know
2: and i I in no way would want to exaggerate my experience with local tv i was the digital media manager so i worked with reporters assignment editors and the the senior news directors uh, to help tell stories online i I found that uh, tv uh, is very interested in trying to figure out what its audience wants online but when i was there in 08 i wasn't sure that the if I may take a step back. I always think there's an interesting intersection between desperation and creativity. I think newspapers were hit very quickly with the desperation part and had to get creative. I'm not sure TV's reached that point yet, or certainly hadn't in 08 and 09 when I was there. Their revenue from TV was still coming in very strong, and online was something where they needed to know what to do, but hadn't completely moved there. I've noticed in the now six years since i've left that it's changed i see a lot more engagement online i see a lot more reporters and editors doing things online but i think the fundamental difference uh is 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 something that i learned a lot there tv man when something happens you are moving in the direction of where the news has happened and you are ready to tell that story tell it quickly tell it well um, and get it on the air, and, you know, in this case, online. That, that's something that I think now the digital world of a traditional newspaper shares. We, we move in the direction where something's happening. We want to tell it in words, photos, and videos, and that's something in one way we share. I, I think the depth that we can bring both in our video storytelling as well as our words is, is an advantage we have.
0: Uh, let's shift a little bit. I want to ask you about the campaign. Uh... This is certainly a campaign like no other, certainly in my lifetime. Uh, how are you covering it, and what do you, what do you see your role in uh, this, this campaign as being? Well, yeah, um it's interesting because
2: Florida is always held up as you know a major battleground state you talk a lot about Orlando to Tampa the what's they often call the i-4 Carter as being a, a real uh, bellwetter for uh, perhaps what's going to happen a lot of the candidates came through uh, during their time here and we we tried to cover them but uh For a a paper our size and a local paper, the best service we could do to readers probably isn't what we could write about Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or during the campaigns, the other candidates. It's really about the the congressional race, the Senate race. Alan Grayson is from Orlando. That's been a very interesting race. Marco Rubio jumped back in. So we'll we'll put more resources between us and our sister paper in South Florida and Fort Lauderdale, the Sun Sentinel, towards some of those statewide races. Um, and a lot of the local ones. So, you know, we still do a traditional voter guide, both online and in print, that tells you who's the candidates running for your your local office, as well as all the way up to national. But uh, our our company, uh, Trunk, former Tribune Publishing, they, I think, do a very good job covering a lot of the day-to-day things that are happening in the campaign, and we try to take full advantage of that online and in print.
0: Well, how much much space in your paper newspaper do you give to uh, those local races? And... uh state races?
2: One of the things that we found is that the interest from our readers, both in print and online, doesn't go up until closer to the primary and closer to the election. So we always aim to have more coverage in the three, four weeks leading up to, in our case, the August 30th primary. Early voting starts August 20th. So we try to make sure that all of the any news that's happening say the rubio race the grayson race those get covered as they happen but we really try to do those sort of profiles issue oriented stories it'll really kick in around august 1st through the month of august and you have a little bit of a time after that where you know it's really more campaign events and then again kick up uh, in october with a special section both in print and online that'll really do that Uh, I'd love to think that that the majority of people are interested around the year as as I would be, but one of the things we found that a numbers bear it out online is it, it takes that two weeks before an election that there's this big spike oh my gosh, who am I voting for what I need to learn about this person and uh, so that that's our plan
0: you know uh, one of the things that we're focusing on in this uh, series of podcasts that we're doing is you know the fate of local newspapers and the outlook is not great. Uh, I think uh, uh, Pew recently uh, compiled a report that said 120 newspapers have basically folded uh, in, in the last 10 years. Uh, newspaper circulation, paper newspapers was down again uh, last year. Uh, digital uh, is doing better, but it's still only a small part uh, of that. Uh, what do you... See, I mean, uh, the part that concerns me is that, you know, if we don't have some entity, and I don't know what that entity is, maybe it's something we haven't invented yet, but unless there is some entity that is able to do what we have come to depend on local newspapers to do, and that is basically to keep an eye on the local government, I think we would have, uh, among other things, corruption at a scale we've never seen in this country. Uh, what do you see as the fate of uh, local newspapers? Wow. Um,
2: one of the things that I often point out when I'm interviewing people in their 20s or 30s is that I'm 58 years old. My my timeline for what I want to get out of this profession is different from theirs. Uh, it is very hard for me to imagine my daughter, who is 28, and my teenager getting a a seven-day-a-week daily newspaper that's produced six to eight hours before it's delivered to their door. I I just don't see that world surviving. Is there a world where they're getting something? I I read the digital edition of the newspaper that looks like a newspaper. It's a digital replica. I'm told that's something baby boomers like. It gives us the comfort of an organization that we grew up with and the way its topography looks like that, but it still is on my tablet and I can take it wherever I want to go um, so I, I but do I still see that we'll be publishing a, a print newspaper in, in 10 years yes in 20 years I don't I don't know I it's very very hard for me it's very resource intensive um, to do that uh, and I will tell you in this company I may be a bit in the minority uh, there are people who figure there will be some long tail of people who always want to read a print paper Certainly, Sundays is bearing out that that's been a very profitable time for both readership and revenue. So maybe we we publish that way. Uh, our, our company has been focusing a lot on you know how do you transform the digital operations at all of our newspapers so that they can engage readers in some way that makes them come back more frequently and makes them um, more attractive to advertisers. So there's been a lot of discussions and some very public about. Uh, what Tronc wants to do, uh, I'm I'm very very hopeful that uh, they're moving and moving quickly to try something, and that if it doesn't work, that they'll move on to what's next. There was a time where I worried that you know that we did we did more planning than execution, and these guys seem very interested in in planning quickly, executing quickly, failing fast if they do, and moving on. And I, I'm not sure in this world you can do it any other way. So. Um, but, Bob, to your point about local corruption, I think that's already started. We, you know, we used to be at every council and commission meeting you know, across the four or five counties that make up Orlando. That's not true anymore. I, I know there are things that are happening that we're just missing because nobody's there. I, I hope the truth ultimately always comes out, and sometimes it does. But I think it's different when you don't see a reporter sitting in the front row at your council meeting every week. I, I, just, I just have to believe that. That's why I got in the job.
1: What kind of effect do you think this is having on government?
2: One of the things that very practically we've seen, uh, Florida is an excellent state for public records. Uh, When you look at other states, we found that there's a lot more times now where somebody will go, nah, you can't have that. And expecting us to either roll over because we don't want to spend the money to challenge it or, or don't have the attorney to get involved or perhaps the reporter isn't as educated in it. Uh, we're even seeing this with now. We're arm wrestling about the 911 calls. We're arm wrestling about the autopsy reports. Things that routinely uh, would be available, they might have some parts redacted, but the law is... I'm no lawyer. The law is very clear to our attorneys that we should have access to that. So I think it started already on that front is that we just we just see a, a lot more times where I've got to call an attorney to send, a, as they like to say, a nasty gram. Hey, Chapter 119 of the Florida Public Records Law says we have the right to this and this and that. And uh, I think that's a practical thing we've seen. Um, Uh, one of the things that I still think is great is all these communities still have that one guy, and this is what I'm doing in my retirement, and one guy or one woman who's a gadfly (laughs) who shows up (laughs) at at a council meeting and and the first call is to to us or the TV station. So, <laughs> we have been tipped to things like that, and that that is my plan. I'm going to be that guy, and I'm I'm uh, I'm not going to run for office, but I'm gonna I'm gonna be that watchdog, and and I think that helps. Uh, you know, there's still a lot of eyeballs out there and ears out there, and some of them have moved online. I mean, we 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 there are a lot of wonderful micro uh, local sites that do a very good job covering their communities and you know we have our ear to those too and sometimes we get beat on that but we still hope we can jump in and and do a good job
1: well we hope you don't retire soon but it'll certainly keep you young if you do that
2: <laughs> uh, no no retirement plans now but uh, it it's just after having been cornered enough at at council meetings over the years by by some uh, well, uh, spoken, very smart person who wanted to tell me in my 20s what I didn't know about what was happening in their town. Uh, I've, I've come to appreciate it more as I've gotten older. that uh, that's, that's a role that citizens can play to help the media.
1: Well, it's interesting. And, and uh, I wanted to ask you, in the digital sense, with regard to these kinds of tips, what, what kind of strategic decisions are you making now for the Sentinel when it comes to digital, knowing what you know, and, and even more specifically, mobile?
2: Well, one of the things with mobile is, I mean, the, the, uh, gosh, going back even three years, I think maybe 20% of our traffic was from uh, phones or tablets. It's always 50 to 60% now. So the first thing we did is what a lot of people have done. And it's funny, Dallas Morning News got caught in the middle of this. We went to a responsive site that works very well online, uh, whatever the screen size. They, uh, if you notice... Dallas was ready to make that transition and kind of got caught in between it and that's just a timing issue. So, so that's a very practical thing that we did, maybe now it's three years ago, uh, to go to a responsive site that just works well, whether you're coming from a phone, a tablet, an Android or a desktop. Um, but I think the toughest thing for us is that I believe that we looked at social media for a while as a place where we just would, were trying to go out and get people and make them come to us, and we've we've had to learn a lot more that uh, you know, have to build up sort of a, a credibility and a, and a community around uh, who we are online for people to care to click through. Uh, or to care to read what you have there. Anybody who's watched anyone with a phone <laughs> and how quickly they will scroll through their Facebook feed knows how dangerous it is to just imagine that, well, my stuff's important. They're going to come to me. So, so I think our strategy has been much more about you know, knowing that while we want to do it as kind of an inbound, we want you to come to us. It's very important to our survival. But we need to we need to build up a community around that. We need to make the right choices about what information we put in front of you. We need to we need to answer your your tweets when they come. I, I love that when somebody tweets at me or sends me a message in Facebook that they don't realize there's actually a real person on the other side of that <laughs> or an email. So that that's been an evolution for us in how we've used social media.
0: Well, John, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. I think uh, your newspaper has demonstrated how important, especially in the worst of times, how important a local newspaper uh, can be. So thanks very much.
1: For Andrew Schwartz,
0: this is Bob Schieffer.
1: If you like this podcast, leave us a review on iTunes, visit us at CSIS.org, and check out the Schieffer College of Communication at schieffercollege.tcu.edu.